You are listening to the Sankofa Council of Milwaukee radio broadcast. The host and executive producer is Dr. Janine James. All of their programs are archived, so go to www.timeforanawakening.com and place in the search portal elders. The Sankofa Council of Milwaukee is an affiliate of the Black Reality Think Tank Radio Network. Reach out to them at Sankofa Council MKE at gmail.com. And I repeat, Sankofa Council MKE at gmail.com. Let us go forth into the glorious future with the words of James Weldon Johnson. Lift every voice and sing till and heaven rings, ring with the heart. We're poor to the creative spirit, the great Ashe out of which we all emerge. Ashe. We pour to that creative spirit by whatever name we know it, whatever name you hold in your heart, in your mind, whatever name your ancestors gave, whatever name you learned as a child, whatever name you believe it to be, whatever name you believe it to be in spirit or in science. Ashe. We pour to the first human beings who came into existence on this planet, the first human beings who raised the first structures, who cooked the first meals, who taught the first children, who had the first children, the first Africans, the first people who stood upright, who walked, who figured out how to stay on this planet, who figured out how to pass that knowledge on to their children and their children's children, the mothers and fathers of civilization. 
libation, Ashe. Ashe. We pour the next libation to their grandchildren and their children's children, those who raised the great early civilizations of Kemet and Kush and Monomotapa, the great medieval civilizations of Ghana and Mali and Songhai and Kanem-Bornu. We pour to those who great the great civilizations of the Igbo people and the Hausa people and the Kikongo people and the Mambara people, the great Monday civilizations, the great Kikongo, the great civilizations of Southern Africa, the Bantu people, the great civilizations of Southeast Africa, the Dinka, the Shilla, the Nur. We pour to those millions who raised the foundations from which the world would learn what it meant to be human in the world, Ashe. We pour to their children who upon the arrival on the shores of people they had never seen before, found themselves captured and marched overland, found themselves perishing by the millions before they were held on the holding cells and the open air pens on the coast of West, Central, Southern, and East Africa. We pour to the ancestors who did not know as they were stripped of all clothing and sent denuded into boats, packed like animals, and strewn their bones across the floor of the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean. We pour to them who in the last moment on Africa grabbed the sand and grabbed the dirt and put it in their mouths and understood that the only thing they might have to preserve their place in that continent was their memory of that place and their ability to pass it on to their children. We pour to them. Ashe. Ashe. We pour to those Africans and their children who finding themselves cast adrift in Santiago, Cuba, who found themselves cast adrift in Puerto Spain, Trinidad, and Puerto Prince, Haiti, who found themselves cast adrift in New Orleans and Charleston and Mobile, who found themselves cast adrift in Salvador, Bahia, who found themselves cast adrift in Barbados and the archipelago that formed the wayward and the, and the windward coast. We found them in these places learning Portuguese and Spanish and French, whose often first words was, oh my God, oh Madre de Dios, who found themselves praying to survive and pass on to their children the memories. We pour to those ancestors who are represented in the thousands, buried in all the square miles of where we stand, and who sit here, buried before us in 400 caskets forged of wood from West Africa with Adinkra symbols. Each one of them, each woman, man, and child, symbolic of millions. The children of those who could not be killed, we pour our shame. We pour to their children who somehow survived the hells of enslavement and fought for emancipation in the Caribbean, the French, British, Dutch Caribbean, who fought for emancipation in South America, who fought for emancipation in Central America, who fought the struggles we refer to as the Civil War in the United States, who came out of that, marched out of enslavement through Reconstruction and found themselves making great migrations, eventually ending up in places like New York. Their children's children, who making a way for themselves, became our great-great-grandparents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our parents. Those who, when the first bones were discovered in this space, held their hands and said, Stop! No more! We are here to speak for those who can no longer speak with their mouths. We pour for those ancestors, some of whom came to Howard University in 2004 and followed these caskets all the way back to New York, we pray to the great ancestors, the ones whose names we know and the ones whose names we don't. And at this moment, as we pour this libation, I would ask anyone who feels comfortable to say the name of someone in your bloodline who is no longer physically here, but who you know made it possible for you to be here. Go ahead, let's hear the names. Haywood Carr, Porter Griffin, Thomas Jr., Evelyn Glover. 
We pour into the names that we hold collectively. Ganga Zumba in Brazil. Toussaint Louverture, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, and Henri Christophe in Haiti. We pour to the great Avengers, Nandi of the Maroons of Jamaica. We pour to the great ancestors, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass. Say the names that you study. Who are the names of the ancestors that you have come to hold in your heart and your mind as you hope that you can do what they did for us, for your children and children's children? Let's say some of those famous names. Kwame John Henry Clark, John Dr. Jackson, Muhammad. Jacob Carruthers. And finally, two final libations. We pour to those who make it possible for us to do what we do. We pour to these rangers who stand guardian over this sacred space. We pour to these Africans and these folks who have come from Howard University, the staff, the faculty, the administrators who brought us here today to bear witness. This is not a libation, but an affirmation because their hearts still beat, their tongues still speak, their minds still think, and their minds still wish the best for us. We pour for all of those people who surrounded us on this journey today and made it possible for us to be here. We pour this affirmation of thanks, Ashe. Ashe. And finally, we pour to your children's children's children who will one day stand on this fate and speak your name. Ashe. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people for they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is It the is same no longer possible to do what we have done in this country for years, look the other way, or to anecdotally explain it as, as some aberration or yes, we do have a problem, but it's really not that bad. I think this year proved that it actually is as bad as we've been telling folks for a long time. And so I think one of the reasons we should be hopeful is that I do believe that we are in a situation where white Americans are willing to accept what we black and brown folks have known for a very long time. And that is that racism is real and it is imbued in all of our institutions and most prominently it is instantiated in our healthcare system. So how do you, when you talk to our white brothers and sisters who are on the journey, how do we talk about this issue of the inequity in healthcare? Well, not only is racism real, it's still with us. You know, it is, it's not something that we can talk about in the past tense. It's still here. And I think we're having a moment similar to the fire hoses that were turned on black protesters that was televised across the country where people got to see firsthand what racism looked like. We've seen it with the murders and we're now seeing it with the, the impact of COVID. 
one of my sons wrote a letter to his school and in the letter he said if you care about the murder of George Floyd you should care about the people who are dying every day from COVID. You should care about the people who are dying every day from diabetes because they they don't have access to quality health care and they live in communities that lack resources. So I think that shining a light on reality is the first step so that people can actually become aware of what people in our country are living with and then turning the awareness and anger into determination to change and sharing a vision for change and then you know helping to lead the way toward that vision and what would you say as the person at the helm of this really critically important signature community hospital what would you say to those policy makers to get them to move to do the things you know they need to do we have a separate and unequal health system and the lack of access to quality health care is killing minorities in this country. I feel both angry and frustrated that we have tolerated these conditions for so long, but a, a part of me is hopeful that we do have a window of opportunity to make some progress. I'm reminded of my favorite poet, Langston Hughes, and his poem in the 1930s called Let America Be America Again. And the first stanza starts, let America be America again. America never was America to me. And he ends, however, with the last stanza, which says, oh, but yes, one day America will be. And so Hughes was voicing both the rage that you were just talking about, you feel, with hope in a belief that this country would live up to its ideals and do what it has never done, which is deliver on that promissory note Dr. King spoke of in his great speech. And so for me, Living, yes, I have lived without privilege. I certainly grew up in a circumstance without privilege, but I live as an adult in this city with enormous privilege. And so for me, there is no time to wallow. Every day, all of us who are black or brown or different, we have to suit up every day. There is no day off for us. And so, I consider it a privilege to have the honor of leading the Ford Foundation and serving this institution and its mission. We are in the business of hope at the Ford Foundation. I have no reason to be anything but hopeful. Even during these dark days, there is still light. And I'm looking at some of that light right now and celebrating you and the dream show and the work of the Martin Luther King Hospital and what it does in this community. The message that you send out of hope, of justice, and of belief in what is possible when a community comes together 
with a great board, a great leader, that real transformation can happen. Thank you. We are in the same business of hope and of pushing for change. And yes, we know that America will become America again because we're not going to let it do anything else.
You are listening to the Sankofa Council of Milwaukee radio broadcast. The host and executive producer is Dr. Janine James. All of their programs are archived, so go to www.timeforanawakening.com and place in the search portal elders. The Sankofa Council of Milwaukee is an affiliate of the Black Reality Think Tank Radio Network. Reach out to them at Sankofa Council MKE at gmail.com. And I repeat, Sankofa Council MKE at gmail.com. Welcome. This is Dr. Janine James, and we are the Sankofa Council of Milwaukee. And we are delighted to be here with you again this week because we have a fantastic topic to talk about. I want to be a doctor. That's what we're going to talk about. I want to be a doctor, and we are going to talk about that today. How does that happen? And we are delighted to have with us, again, Dr. Cheryl R. Martin, who is very passionate about this subject, and she has come back again and is going to talk with us about how to become a doctor. We're also looking forward to Dr. Sir Grice, who will be joining us because we've had some questions for a discussion about COVID-19 updates and monkeypox. But before we go there, the Sankofa Council of Milwaukee would like to share with you and our host, Mother Asarta, the purpose of the Sankofa Council. Good evening, Dr. James. Good evening. To our guests and to our listening audience. The purpose of Sankofa Council from our bylaws is the Sankofa Council of Milwaukee is an ever-evolving community dedicated to cultivating Sankofa, the reclaiming of our African memory, our African governance, and our African spirituality in order to provide a healing and empowerment environment for people of African descent globally. Through immersive exploration of study and practice, we exemplify the principles of Nguzo Saba which provide moral and unifying values as the foundation for constant movement towards restoring our people to our traditional greatness. We study and exemplify the ancient laws of Ma'at that allowed our ancestors to flourish, to survive, and to pass on a legacy of greatness. 
and to interact harmoniously with the world by honoring the universal consciousness in all of creation. We contribute the skill sets that we've acquired as we seek ways to share with our descendants the principles that have historically been our strengths and that have sustained us through captivity, colonization, and acculturation. We are determined and dedicated and committed for as long as it takes to fulfill this purpose. Thank you, Dr. J. Thank you. Boy, isn't that wonderful, that message. And as is our custom, we would like to offer to you our ancestral profile. Mother Sarta, can you help us with that too? I can. Um, our ancestral profile for this evening is Vivian Thomas. Vivian Theodore Thomas. Vivian Thomas was a highly regarded was highly regarded in the medical community for his scientific genius and surgical skills. Thomas had hoped to attend college and become a doctor. However, the stock market crashed and with it the banks and with it the banks, nearly all his savings was gone. His dreams of education were shattered. With no formal medical training, Thomas helped to develop intricate surgical techniques that ultimately saved thousands of lives. Thomas performed research in the animal laboratories at Vanderbilt University during the 1930s, leading the widespread use of blood and plasma transfusions during World War II. Later, at John Hopkins University, Thomas worked with Dr. Alfred Blaylock as he performed hundreds of experimental procedures on laboratory dogs to develop the blue baby operation for treating congenital cyanotic health disease, a malfunction of the heart, which results in insufficient oxygen in the blood and causes a bluish discoloration of the skin and mucous membrane. Blaylock and Thomas spent much of the year developing and performing experimental procedures in the laboratory in preparation for the historic operation on Eileen Saxon, but it was Thomas who worked out the final details of the surgical technique and taught final details of the sur and taught them to Blaylock. On the day of the operation, flanked by a surgical team that included some of the country's most foremost physicians and researchers, Blaylock refused to begin the procedure without Thomas at his side. Thomas was located in the laboratory and was summoned to the operating floor. For the next three hours, Thomas stood at Blaylock's right shoulder, watching carefully as the surgeon's scalpel and needles moved in and out and offering a helpful guidance. Because of Thomas's surgical, surgical, surgical I'm sorry, expertise and his exhaustive knowledge of the procedure, Blaylock insisted that he be present for the first 100 operations. 
in truth, Dr. J. Alex Taylor, profession, professor of pediatric surgery at John Hopkins, was quoted as saying, Vivian Thomas was the surgical glove on Blaylock's experimental hand. Although he received little formal recognition during Blaylock's lifetime, Thomas served as a supervisor of the surgical research laboratories at John Hopkins University from 1941 until 1979. During this time, he played an important role in training of a many of the nation's top surgeons and mentoring a number of African-American lab assistants, as well as Hopkins' first black cardiac resident, Levi Watkins Jr., whom Thomas assisted with his groundworking breaking work in the use of the automatic implantable defibrillator. Thomas served as a research technician without a degree and was teaching operative techniques to white staff surgeons at the university's hospital. Thomas's work was encountered by racial segregation and prejudice of the time, and he was not officially recognized for his achievements and contributions until many years later. Thomas was finally honored for his work in 1968. The surgeons he trained, who had then become chiefs of surgical departments throughout America, commissioned the painting of him and arranged to have it hung next to Blaylock in the lobby of the Alfred Blaylock Clinical Sciences Building. In 1976, John Hopkins University presented Thomas with an honorary doctorate. Due to certain restrictions, he received an honorary doctor of law rather than a medical doctorate, but it did allow the staff and students at John Hopkins Hospital and John Hopkins School of Medicine to call him doctor. After having worked for 37 years, Thomas was also finally appointed to the faculty of the School of Medicine as the instructor of surgery. Due to his lack of official medical degree, he was never allowed to operate on a living patient. In July 2005, John Hopkins School of Medicine began the practice of splitting incoming first-year students into four colleges, each named for famous Hopkins faculty members who had major impacts on the history of medicine. Thomas was chosen as one of the four, along with Helen Tosic, Florence Sabin, and Daniel Nathan. Shortly before his death, November 26, 1985, Thomas completed his autobiography, pioneering research in surgical shock and cardiovascular surgery. Vivian Thomas and his work with Alfred Blakelock, in which he recalled extraordinary life, his extraordinary life and accomplishment. Having learned about Thomas on the day of his death, Washington writer Katie McCabe bought his story to public attention in 1989, article entitled, Like Something the Lord Made, which won the 1990 National Magazine Award for feature writing and inspired the PBS documentary, Partners in the Heart, which was broadcast in 2003. The PBS 
Johnson's American Experience and won the Organization of American Historians Eric Barrow Award for Best History Documentary in 2004. McCabe's article, Bought to Hollywood, Bought to Hollywood by Washington, D.C. dentist Irving Sorkin, formed the basis for the Emmy and Peabody Award-winning 2004 HBO film, Something the Lord Made. Vivian Thomas was portrayed in the film by most deaf. Vivian Theodore Thomas, a dream deferred but realized as something the Lord made. May he rest in peace. Ashe? Ashe. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Mother Sarta. That was beautiful. That information that you've shared with us, and I think it's particularly fitting that we're talking about one who's doing work in cardiac or heart conditions to have also a expert in heart conditions, Dr. Cheryl R. Martin here with us today. And we were very fortunate to have last week Queen Mother Shabaka who presented the Nguza Saba principle of Nia, which is applicable this week as well, Nia or purpose, to make our collective vocation the building and developing of our community in order to restore our people to their traditional greatness. Queen Mother Shabaka gave us much more in-depth discussion, but just as a reminder, uh, that was an important discussion uh, for us to, to keep in mind. But we're talking about wanting to be a doctor. This is where it starts. When asked, what do you want to be when you grow up or at any time along your journey, you first start with this sentence, I want to be a doctor. And I think the music that we played at the beginning, when you believe, you have to believe that you can be a doctor. But for most of us, that sentence is a dead end. We don't know what to do to make that happen. Unfortunately, our parents, our teachers, or churches, or other organizations do not know how to make that statement a reality. But we are in a different time. We are beginning to understand that our lives depend on us being doctors. We cannot, because of the racism, leave this up to someone else to do this. The research has shown that black people do better when their doctors are also black. But there are not enough of us who are doctors to take care of us. It helps tremendously if you can see a black doctor for you to not only aspire to becoming a doctor, but to achieve that goal. So the next step is setting 
for yourself a goal and seeking someone who can guide your journey to that goal. Dr. Cheryl R. Martin joins me in sharing the secrets to becoming a doctor. We have done it and we have helped many to achieve that goal and beyond. Dr. Martin, I shared last week some of my early journey, observation of black doctors in the community. My pediatrician was a black woman. What was your experience? What prepared you most for the journey? Dr. Martin. Yes, Dr. James. Thank you so much. And when we talk about wanting to be a doctor and what makes that happen, we have to realize the overall concept of nurturing a child's background in science, because that's the key. You have to go into medicine with a strong background in science. And one's parent can allow that, to happen even at a very early kindergarten age because during that time a child has unlimited curiosity and if a parent nurtures that curiosity the child will continue to be curious and want to know about how the world works and everything and that interest may develop into the desire to become a physician. So here are some things a parent can do to nurture even young children um, for a science career. And that career background can be in all the health sciences, not just limited to medicine. It can be in all of the health sciences. So what kind of things can a parent do? Well, one very important thing a parent can do is just be interested when your child has a question. It's as simple as that. When your child has a question, do not say, I'm busy, don't bother me. Do not say that. Just say, if you are busy, just say, mommy's busy right now, but hold that thought and I'll get back to you. We'll talk about that a little bit later. That's all you have to do. And you can do little experiments with the child. Like for example, you can, you can uh, make a hypothesis, which is a question. You can form a question in science like, how do flowers drink water? Or how do plants get water from the ground? And you can take some celery and put it in a jar of water and put some food coloring in the water and watch the water get drawn up into the celery like it's a straw drinking it. That's easy. And that's very exciting for a, ch- a little child to see that. And that's developing the scientific method. The scientific method is, is, is how, how things are done. And you can do things like that. You can also take the child to the the Museum of Science and Industry or Science and Technology. And most cities will have a separate science museum for children. 
and children enjoy that. You can also have the child under, learn uh, about the different scientific methods like communication, observation, prediction. And the key to science, the scientific method, is simply observation. That's the most important thing that you can do in science is observation. So then you can move on to elementary school where the child should have a very strong background in mathematics, not arithmetic, but mathematics and science. If the child needs help, extra help, get them a tutor. And you can do these things for little or no cost. Just request a tutor and the teacher should be able to help you find one. And, I mean, that's just really necessary. If your child is having difficulty, get him some help. That's number one. Get him some help. If he's, this is because he wasn't born a natural genius, does not mean he cannot go further or could be a doctor. That's not true. If he needs some help, get him some help. He goes, you can do, send him to a science camp during the summer. Look it up online. Find out where they have science camps and send him or her. Then in college, he can, they, they should take a, a major, whatever they like. They can, they can take a whatever they like to major in. Whatever they're going to get a good grade in, a high GPA, they should take that and then apply to medical school. But before they do that, they should have, they should be able to find somebody in the community that they can watch and hook up with that person and they can go to the office or go to the hospital with them and really see what doctors do and what researchers do. They may want to do research, which is wonderful. They may want to try to find a cure for one of these cancers. That's excellent. So it's not impossible but it does take forethought. It's not something that you think of at the spur of the moment and then go and try to do it. It does take a lot of planning and a lot of forethought, but it can easily be done. It doesn't take extra money. It just takes creativity. That's it. And that's basically what I have to say, Janine. What helped me a lot was that my parents allowed me to experiment all the time. I, I, I just lived to wake up and create another experiment in the kitchen. And I was always experimenting in the kitchen all the time, putting stuff in the oven, seeing what would happen to it, digging in the yard, seeing what would happen outside, all of that. And that was very helpful to me very helpful well dr martin those are very very helpful suggestions for people to use and uh, we're so happy that you offered that information i see we have a question 
uh, who's here. I don't see a number, but I see a name, Darcy. Darcy, you have a question or a comment for Dr. Martin? Well, Darcy, maybe come back to you again. I see a call from 334-414-334-414. Good evening, Dr. James. I'm just listening in today. Thank you for picking my call. Thank you so much for giving us a call. Yes. As I was listening to Dr. Martin, and I thought about some areas as well that that we might not think about that are very important, but the ability to not only read, but also the ability to write. A doctor does a lot of writing. They do a lot of writing of stories. They listen to what the patient says and they write down what they've said, and they write a diagnosis, they write a plan. So writing becomes very important. The ability to express oneself in a written form is extremely important skill for a doctor any area of the health professions. And so the taking of the English classes and being able to express oneself is so very important. What do you think about that, Dr. Martin? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, you have to be well written. And when you're doing these observations at, the, at a younger age, you need to write down your observations. What do you see? And you can do that by drawing a picture. If you don't, if you if you're not able to write a sentence or a paragraph, you can just draw a picture of what you see. And it's very important. What about talking to your doctor? about what your goal is. That's a resource. Yes. That can be a resource. Yes, it can be. And so you tell your doctor, I'm interested in becoming a doctor. Tell me something that I can do to prepare. Now, I think that the doctors need to ask this question when they see their patients, especially when they are young or adolescent. These are questions that I ask of my patients so that we can enter that conversation because I'd like to encourage others to join me in this area of healthcare. So your own doctor can be extremely helpful in your beginning in this journey and how you prepare yourself. And I think that too often people try to do it by themselves without help. 
Yes. I took the avenue of participating in science fairs at school. Yes. I really enjoyed that experimenting like you're talking about. Yes. And being able to present to others what it is that I've learned and help them to better understand some of these scientific principles. Absolutely. That was great fun for me. Yes. Plus, as I got older, I was able to win money, awards that allowed me to use that money to go to college. Yes. So I know not a lot of people take that route, but that's that's the one that I very actively participated in. And being involved in something that you love, something that you're passionate about. My goddaughter danced, and she was very serious about dancing. And this served as a very wonderful way of communicating with the people who were interviewing her for medical school. And so she was able to convey the discipline that was required to become a dancer. But your interest could be fishing. It could be art. It does not have to be a science, but something that you've demonstrated discipline that yes. you are very focused about. Yes. So these are uh, these are ways. Uh, this is a, a not a one-time uh, occasion for us to talk about it because this is such uh, extensive type of uh, career path, and people may enter at different times in their lives. Not everybody thinks about it when they are a young child. And there are some people who later in life recognize that this is something that they would like to do. And we will be able to talk about this as well, about people who enter this process at a later time. Dr. Martin and I started this out very young and stayed focused in our preparation for becoming a doctor. But there are some people who do start at uh, a later time. And I'm going to uh, stop for just a moment in this discussion and uh, my Mother Asarta, um, you have some information you wanted to share with us about our sponsor? Yes. Our sponsor, eDoc Advice, is a website created to provide a place to get answers to your health or medical concerns. Are you wanting more options than you feel you're getting? Let them help you problem solve. Go to their website and ask your question. Their experienced professionals will help you to obtain the help you need that makes sense to you. 
That's www.edocadvice, E-D-O-C-A-D-V-I-C.com. Thank you for sharing that information with us. And we have a, a, a little more time before the top of the hour. And I wanted to use this as a time to share a little information about a program that we have in Milwaukee. And it is called the Milwaukee Academy of Science. And this was a, a an idea that came about 20 years ago. And it came about as a result of the need for more doctors with a diverse background, particularly black doctors, and knowing that children needed to be prepared at an early age. And so this is a school, regular school, but their focus is on the health sciences beginning at kindergarten taking you through high school and with this type of a focus it was felt it has been felt that this may serve as a pipeline to becoming a physician or pipeline to practice as it is called and so the uh, Milwaukee Academy of Science is uh, a wonderful place to send one's children where you know that this is a setting that will get your children involved in attending museums, as Dr. Martin mentioned, that provide some interactive displays making it easier to understand some of the scientific concepts. And so I would highly recommend those who have children who've said, I want to be a doctor, to look at enrollment in the Milwaukee Academy of Science. But there are throughout the country many similar types of settings that exist that will help to have your children in a setting that will allow them to, to explore, to be creative, to study about science. Uh, where I went to high school, there were about 10 of us in just one class who became doctors. And I credit that to the teachers that we had who believed that we could do it and encouraged us. And so this is so very important that you have some other people who believe it as well as you believing it.
that you can do it and you have the passion to be able to make this a reality and it's there's never a dull moment as a health professional you never know the story of each person there's some things that are similar some things that aren't and listening and asking the questions that will help you to figure out what's going on are they okay are they not okay and what is it that you need to do to try to help to figure out what's going on and what is it that's going to need to be done to help make them feel better so it's just a extremely rewarding career that serves your community so you always know that you are going to be in need and in some instance knowing that people need your help encourages you to read and learn and ask questions so that you can help them feel better so we we are very happy to have dr martin with us talking uh, about this very important subject and we're going to go to our top of the hour and we're going to come back a little later and talk a little bit more with uh, Dr. Cheryl R. Martin, cardiologist, internal medicine specialist, about becoming a doctor. But until then, we'll have our top of the hour announcements. Thank you. Is our production team ready with us? I'd like to ask you to call in if you have some questions for us comments our number is 215-490-9832 for questions or comments from for Dr. Cheryl R. Martin or for uh, questions from me about what needs to be done to become a doctor and you can email us at Sankofa Council mke at gmail.com
Dr. Jane? Yes. I have a quick question. Go ahead. For Dr. Martin, um, is there ever a time where it's too late to study um, in that field uh, or to become a doctor, in other words? Um, uh, you would think that one would be young and energetic and full of fire and can soak up a whole lot of knowledge, but does that uh, get to a threshold, to a point where eh, uh, I may be 55 years old and don't think I you know, can manage it? Is there a, a, a breaking off point? Dr. Martin? Yes. You want to take that question? Yes. Um, generally, for medical school uh, education, they don't feel that they should invest in people beyond the age 40, um, mid-40s. They don't feel that it's worthwhile to make an investment. So if you're approaching mid, your mid-40s, I would say that's probably you, you're reaching the limit of that. But you can, you maybe can go to physician assistant school and be a physician assistant um, at, 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 a, at an older age. And I, I'm not sure what the age cutoff is for that. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. The um, I have seen some students that have been uh, older. Let's put it that way. I've seen some students have been older, um, and I think it differs from one school to the next. Some of the rules tend to be um, a little different, uh, but there's so many uh, ways that one can serve, as Dr. Martin said, as a physician's assistant, um, as well as in, in medical research. There continues to be a great need for people to understand some of the scientific principles, like those individuals who have um, developed vaccines, have studied the research. So um, I think that rather than give up on one's idea, you can always schedule an appointment with a medical school expressing your interest in becoming a doctor. And I think you can learn a little bit more if they have some strict rules uh, but they may feel that there are some things about your background or history that makes it um, reasonable to assist you in that process. So I think it's not too late to explore what the possibilities are. But as you mentioned, people who tend to be younger are more energetic, but then also some of the older students tend to be very focused and learn very quickly and may have been in careers that will provide some advanced standing for them. So I really appreciate that question coming to us. 
And then we have, uh, I see uh, the numbers. It looks like longer than a phone number. Um, three, I'm sorry, two, three, seven, six, seven, two, three, seven, six, seven. If that looks like somebody's number. Do you have? Uh, yes, Dr. James. This is Sharkham calling from Cameroon. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Oh, the pleasure is mine. I'm, I'm just happened to see the, the announcement for tonight's program and um, was available to, to listen. And I understand that Dr. Martin is one of your guests who I knew a few years ago. And um, so I'm just happy to be in the same sphere as both of you wonderful women. And also, um, the topic is kind of close to me because my first daughter just graduated with her medical degree from the University of Douala here last week. And so this topic just comes right on time for us. So I was interested in listening to 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 the discussion tonight. Oh my Congratulations goodness. on your daughter. Thank you. Thank you. I hope she gets an opportunity to either or both of you the next time she's in Milwaukee. Absolutely. That yeah. that would be wonderful. Well there it's good to know that there are people who are still showing an interest and are willing to do the work that's required and I'm sure it was a very proud moment for you. And it will truly be a wonderful resource for the family, for the community, with the efforts that she has made. Uh, what what area of medicine will she be doing her training? Um, she hasn't decided, but her topic was um, diagnostic value of pro. BNP, I believe, with respect to chronic kidney disease and cardiovascular disease. So I think she's headed towards cardiology, interventional cardiology. Um, I think that's where her interests lie. So she will be preparing um, the USMLE uh, examination in the state over the next two years, step one and step two. And... Um, I believe after that she will spend some time specializing in that field in the state um, and then probably returning to Cameroon, which, you know, we hope she does. But I think tentatively that's her plan. Sorry, I have to Dr. Martin, do you have any thoughts about um, the next steps. Next steps for what, Dr. James? That her daughter might be considering in her preparation for her journey. Uh, re doing some research projects, writing a paper. Um, 
Anything that you can think that would be helpful? Okay, what school did she graduate from? She, she graduated from the University of Douala here in Douala, Cameroon, Central West Africa. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, and, um, so, and so, okay, so she, and she does not have a position, a residency position in the United States. Yes, for one. No, she does not. Because okay. I believe a, I'm gonna put you in the equivalency exam to you know to be admitted. Now that becomes a little challenging when people have studied outside of the country and then attempting to get into programs within the pro, uh, the country, it's not impossible, uh, but sometimes they make it a little more difficult uh, to do right. so, and so she shouldn't be discouraged when that happens, uh, but be prepared for it to be somewhat of a, an uphill battle, so to yeah. speak. Yeah, but but it is mm-hmm. it is possible. Okay. So so, so she yeah. needs to just contact various medical schools across the country and inquire about their um, fifth pathway. It's called inquire about what the qualifications are to be in the fifth pathway, and so we can find out what 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 she needs to do to be able to get back over here and, and, and do her residency uh, in an American school. That's what needs to happen. And oh, then once right. she does her residency, then she can go and do her fellowship because if she wants to be a cardiologist, she'll have to have a fellowship. She'll have to be able to do it. So she has to do a residency in internal medicine and a fellowship in cardiology. I see. Yes. She will not be able to practice cardiology without that. And she'll have to pass a battery of tests along the way. It will be very difficult. Very Mm -hmm. difficult. Yes. But I'm I'm rooting for her. That's a wonderful thing that she's got this far. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's been very determined um, since the age of four. All uh, right, wonderful. Is, yeah, this is something she wanted to do. So okay, and all right. But my concern, if if I may, is where will she find time to have a family? Uh, do you have any advice on that? Because okay, really now that's a wonderful topic, isn't it, Doctor James? that's a hot topic that's a good one that's a good one so we 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 both agree that we can have it all we agree that we can have it all but we just can't have it all in one day we can't have it all the same day we have to have we have to spread it over time so we can have our wonderful marriage we can have our wonderful children we can have our wonderful career, but over a t- over a period of time, not everything and all at once. 
And but okay. you do have to juggle a lot. You have to juggle and you cannot make poor decisions. You have to make mature, well thought out decisions. But you don't have to sacrifice that much and you can have it all. You can. You need to be surrounded by people who are going to provide you with a lot of support. You have to have high self-esteem. You can't have anybody trying to tear you down. No, that's not going to work. You only have to have people who can build you up. That's it. Anybody else, they got to go. Okay. And she will be able to do that if she's determined she will be able to do that. Okay. When you agree, Dr. James? Yes. Um, I I started late um, in that family sort of thing. Um, and you really need to have uh, a mate that is supportive with the amount of study that you're going to do. And this is what uh, serves to be a challenge for for many people, but it's not impossible. Uh, but you, you have to decide what's first. And, um, and you put a lot of time in your study. So um, we want them to know, that, want you to know, and her to know that it is possible, but it's it's going to add a lot of extra work. And okay. so we've done it. Dr. Martin and I have both done it, and and um, and it's worth it. So we thank absolutely. you absolutely. Absolutely. And I know that you're concerned as her mother. You're very concerned about that. And as you should be. Yes. But it That's is possible. In this environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But she but she can. If she's got to just be a good juggler and make good decisions. Well, we have, we are pleased at this time to invite and to have received our invitation, Dr. Sir Grice. And Dr. Grice has honored us by coming with us before to share with us some valuable information. And there have been more questions that have come in regarding good old COVID. And so Dr. Grice, um, one of the questions that I wanted to put to you, uh, because this has been uh, relatively new, that we've begun to provide some treatment, to some real treatment to people. I just in the last week um, had a patient who tested positive for COVID, who is uh, older with some medical conditions, and I was able to offer uh, treatment, Plaxovid, that um, uh, I was very impressed at 
how quickly it seemed to work in terms of making them feel better. It's the same medicine that has been used to treat uh, President Biden. And, um, and so I, I would like for you to speak to that and whatever you'd like to add to this on the COVID uh, issue, Dr. Grice. Oh, all righty. Well, thank you for having me back and hello to everyone out there. Um, directly speaking towards um, Plaxicovid, Plaxicovid is the number one go-to right now with treatment um, for uh, mild to moderate symptoms of COVID. Uh, it's a five-day course that is uh, distributed about six tablets or capsules a day. You have two active medications and then what we would call a booster medication to help um, increase the amount of the concentration of the active ingredient in the system. And it's taken twice a day um, for five days with uh, similar properties. Uh, it's an antiviral medication. Uh, so it resembles some of the um, uh, HIV medications and uh, of that format. They have huge impact on the liver. So we'll always try to do a check on a patient's liver to make sure that they can have, they have good liver um, outputs um, because those uh, in our liver, we break down the majority of our, our medications. And um, in that system, which we call the cytochrome P450 system, um, our bodies have markers that allow us to break down things at a different rate. And sometimes if the liver isn't operating the way it can or if patients are on other medications that interact with this system, um, there can be some reactions. So in most cases, you'll be asked um, by your provider um, or do a liver test, and then if you are on specific medications that activate some of these specific um, metabolic enzymes in the liver, they might ask you to stop those medications for a duration while you're on, on the medication. <clears throat> but realistically, it's a very, very good medication. And the concept is to with most antiretroviral medications are to break the ability for the medication to replicate within our um, RNA and decrease the affinity for that, that virus to actually um, increase in its, in its growth processes and um, you know, bind more into the cell to get a greater affinity for that bug. So that's pretty much how the, the drugs are working. And if you've got a mild case, it means that using this antiretroviral, it gets your body enough time to decrease the affinity for that virus to truly replicate enough to give um, some severe symptoms. And hopefully, and the whole goal is to decrease the need for hospitalization long term. As, as, are there any downsides to taking this medicine? You mentioned people who have uh, known liver problems may not be um, uh, good candidates for receiving this medication. That is that's something that might um, give us reason to pause. 
but there is also a reduced dosing depending on one's liver function that we can give, um, where we do a 20 capsule course over the same duration. It's just a lesser dose to have less impact on the liver and that metabolic system. Um, in most cases, with most antiretrovirals and antibiotics, you're dealing with upset stomach, nausea, diarrhea type symptoms. Um, and those are um, for the duration of while you're on the medication. Um, but um, holistically, um, we haven't seen too much um, horrible side effects, not a lot of allergic reactions either from that medication, which is also always the number one thing we fear with anything that we're giving people is the uh, allergic reaction. So this, uh, again, is an important um, thing to know that we do have some treatments that are available that are helping to keep people out of the hospital and um, and hopefully uh, helping to reduce the number of people who are dying as a result of COVID. And uh, we're still we're still wearing those masks. Yes. Yeah, everybody wants to get out the mask, but then it doesn't seem like the time is right yet. And Dr. Uh, Grice, uh, everybody's asking questions about monkeypox. What can you tell us about that? Well, monkeypox, I mean, monkeypox has been around for a while, so it's not like COVID where it's something that's brand new. Monkeypox has been around. It just hasn't been something that has um, hit the states. Um, and you're not seen a lot of cases yet, which, I mean, of course they'll come, but majority of those cases are coming from bigger states with, with higher populations of people. Um, the strands that have been identified have been identified as not highly uh, deadly. Um, you just really more or less a level of uncomfort that you can get, and um, those the reaction is another reason why the mask is important, but you're getting a large majority from direct physical and, um, interactions with people who have them. Um, so it's something that is to be aware of and to look out for, uh, but right now it is not something of um, COVID magnitudes of level. Deaths aren't, aren't high. Uh, the amount of people with it is, is slim. Um, they're noticing that the majority of people right now who are presenting with it, with it uh, are men that um, have sex with other men. Uh, so it's, it's one of those um, situations that is a little bit more isolated depending on your surroundings. Um, but that does not mean that other people can't get it. It's just those are the, that populace is who's identifying with a greater um, percentage of the cases at the moment. But at the moment right now, it's really more, it's if people understood what shingles is, monkeypox would probably be uh, something that's similar. It's very, very nerve wracking temperature and, and, you know, fluid filled pustules that can be painful. Uh, 
um, but the chances of mortality and death are slim. Um, at the moment, there is a vaccine, but the vaccine isn't easily obtainable at the moment for most. It's got to be something that um, goes through unnecessary amounts of paperwork, but it's not something that you can just get from your, your pharmacy or your doctor's office um, easily. And uh, um, in most cases, if uh, a case is taken or received, the patient will be pretty much quarantined um, for two weeks until it gets out of their system. Thank you. Um, Mother uh, Asarta, you had some questions about monkeypox, I believe. Do you have something for Dr. For Dr. Grice? I think Dr. Grice, thank you, Dr. Grice. You addressed the, um, the monkeypox concern, um, especially in the most affected uh, group. It affects um, most seriously. I appreciate the update. Yes, ma'am. Are we seeing um, less of the numbers of people who are being hospitalized and having uh, ventilator, ventilator support, Dr. Grice? We are seeing less hospitalizations, but we are definitely seeing an end uptick of of the of COVID still. Um, so uh, that is partially to go with the, the increase of vaccines and vaccination. And it's also probably the increase of the amount of people that have encountered um, COVID already. So the large majority of people have some level of immunity built in already. So when they're interacting and seeing it again, their body's immune system is having a level of being able to fight off or ward off um, some of the major symptoms. Um, but in this life cycle, a large majority of people that I'm interacting with who have gotten COVID again for either a second or a third time are saying that it is starting to give them some serious symptoms where they actually are feeling sick. Um, so it is definitely a, a serious issue that's still around. Um, and we're, it's so new to us that we're going to probably have have a couple more years still before we get a better grasp on it with COVID mutating at an exponential rate. And so it's something that we should continue to be vigilant in and being vaccinated and vigilant in all of our um, um, preventative measures, washing our hands, good oral hygiene, um, having a solid diet, exercise. All those little things do help to build up our immunity uh, so keeping those things in, in the front of our mind and not falling back and becoming lazy to some of the simple things can definitely continue to keep us on the path of a good health. When you were last here on the uh, broadcast, you were awaiting uh, a new baby. Oh, <laughs> was I? You've got, yeah, you said you were waiting your a new baby. So do you have an update for us? And also uh, what your thoughts are about the vaccination for 
for children? Um, so I, we were blessed with a healthy baby boy, March 17th. He's four months now. I don't know how big he is, but he's a little, he's a big little dude. Um, so thank God for that blessing that we have. Um, my daughter is four and a half, so she'll be eligible for the vaccine very soon. And as a parent who was vaccinated, I would definitely vaccinate my child. Um, as a vaccinator myself, I have vaccinated several children. And um, um, I believe I believe in, in preventative health more than any level of other health care that there can be. If there's something that is out there that we can utilize to either rid us of an issue or prevent the severity of the issue, I would, I'm definitely going to be a proponent for pushing that situation. Um, to me, I believe vaccines are that for us in our society. Um, thank God for those that have taken away chicken pox, whooping cough, smallpox, a lot of diseases that we've been blessed not to deal with have been removed due to being vaccinated. And um, the amazing part is the concept of a vaccine is very ancient and, you know, it was taught to many settlers here by old ancient African concepts of inoculation. So, yes, it, I would definitely be a proponent for vaccinating my child, and I would tell everyone else to do the same. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Grace, and uh, we appreciate you coming on. I'm going to ask you one other question, and uh, we got a, uh, a question from one of our listeners about age to enter into medicine is it is it too late to do that and we talked about um different roles as health professionals and um what would your thoughts be to someone who was older who had a desire to become a health professional and and how this might apply to your choice uh, of, of uh, health care. And um, is there some words of advice you might offer to our listeners? So I'll answer this in three parts. The first part is um, I would ask the individual what is their dreams or what are their passions? And if those passions align to uh, the healthcare field, then I would tell them to pursue that passion. Um, because healthcare in this day and age is a very challenging, stressful, and arduous profession to get into if you are not passionate about that profession. Um, so no matter what age or point, if you're passionate or you know you're called to do this this service because ultimately it is a service that is being provided we are servants to our patients and if you look if you are african-american black hispanic brown whatever if you look like a community that is underserved your community needs your service far more than many others 
And so you're really taking on a major role by pursuing um, the practice of medicine. And so that is the first thing that would be said. The second thing is, uh, depending on time, we might prepare you have to have um, the time because you might be in a more financially stable predicament or your family might be in a more stable situation to accommodate the sacrifice that is required to pursue um, an education in healthcare. Most programs um, require, depending on what level of initial education you possess, a minimum, a minimum of two extra years of education. So if you want to be a nurse or a nurse practitioner, that's a six-year program. So if you already have a bachelor's, you've got two years to go or a year and a half for sure. Um, for a pharmacist, if you have a bachelor, that's a four-year program unless you go to a, um, a rigorous three-year program that are in the selected areas. And med school, of course, is a four-year program on top of um, residencies and fellowships that can go on afterwards. Pharmacy possesses some residency opportunities, but it's not mandatory to pursue um, that level of education. And then um, the nursing route, you can go as far up as a doctor and nurse practitioner. And, and so all of these things take time. And that time um, is a sacrifice that without a family is a lot easier, but with a mature family is definitely feasible and possible. And um, depending if you are with a mate or if you're single, that also changes the outcomes of those situations. Um, the third thing to realize is that the education that you are pursuing needs to be a thought process that is not solely financially driven. Um, what we are pursuing may not always align with our financial um, feedback. And that being said, um, the cost to obtain the degree can be quite challenging. And uh, if you are not passionate about the profession, the time necessary to recoup that degree can be quite, quite time consuming. So it's definitely something to look into both um, personally through your own passion and through your own personal finances. Ultimately, it's a it's a calling, in my opinion. It's something that you have to be called to do to serve. Um, and if you're operating in that calling, it's the greatest it's the greatest greatest profession to enter into. Um, you gain knowledge about how our bodies operate in ways that most people don't. It allows you to see um, some of the ways we are treated in underserved fashion, and it allows you to be a voice for those who have no idea how they're being misled, mistreated um, in certain situations. I'll give an example. With African-Americans, our pain is not equally equated in the eyes of most practitioners that do not look like us. So being able to be able to take care of a patient who is experiencing pain and actually treat them the per correct way and not, not provide them with the necessary medications or services because it was believed that we don't have pain the same way. Um, these small situations 
provide insight and allow us to bring ourselves to a more um, upstanding playing field in this world that we live in. So if it's, a, if it's a passion of yours, pursue it. And then finally, when you do pursue it, ask for help. Um, the communities of practitioners out there is, isn't that big, but we definitely support each other because we understand how challenging the pursuit um, for the uh, opportunity to practice is. I'm going to go to 334-414, who had uh, questions earlier on this subject. And you have Dr. Sir Grice here. And uh, I think he pointed out some really important points that um, I'd like to hear what your thoughts are. Um, you know, as... as as you were talking, Doctor, I um, uh, thought, well, finances is, is one thing that would prohibit, say, one who is um, a little older than the norm uh, to pursue uh, the medical profession. But I was thinking with regards to Cuba, um, the study of medicine in Cuba, where I, I, do, I think it's free to study there. Um, and uh, what are your thoughts about going to other foreign countries and then eventually making it back um, to, to practice. Um, so what are your thoughts on that, on that? If you have a passion to do it, do whatever way you want to, it will be challenging to, it is, is not as easy to get the same level of licensure here and that will extend the duration of time that you would have to do to practice. Uh -huh. um, so if you pursue your, your education outside of America, you still have to go through a similar route of a degree. Um, some places are a little different, though. Like I think in India you can get uh, your degree in a little bit less time. But when you get back to America, you'll have to take anywhere between uh, – and depending on your degree, anywhere between 1,800 hours or more plus of time spent practicing underneath someone else as well as taking a test to pass to get to that point. And there are some legality differences um, between um, where you practice. So practicing here in America there are things that we find to be legally necessary where there might not be other places. Examples are antibiotics for one. In America, you need a prescription for antibiotics. Um, in a lot of Caribbean places and other places across the globe, you don't. You can just go in, go to the, uh, to the pharmacy and get the antibiotic. The reasoning behind that is um, in America, because we use so many antibiotics as first-line treatments within our hospital systems, resistance can be built up and if that resistance can be built um, those medications can become useless to treat some bugs long term if we just give out medications without understanding how to properly use those meds um, so there's just certain things that will, will bring will bring some uh, time tables to it but um, there is I'm never going to tell someone you can't 
pursue alternative means to get to the finish line. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for your response. Well, Dr. Grace, we appreciate your stopping by and, um, and we look forward to inviting you back again. Uh, hopefully, uh, the COVID issue will be less of a problem, but, we know that you will advise us and guide us uh, so that we can make better, more informed decisions in this, in this whole crisis. But again, thank you, Dr. Grice, for coming on with us today. No problem. Thank you guys again. And Dr. Martin has had a chance for a little break a little breather <laughs> yeah uh, on on this subject and um we're talking about i want to be a doctor yes and we'd like to continue that discussion okay so, so let let me just review what what was previously said about that and I, what I started, what I said before was that what we want to do to promote wanting to be a doctor is we want to facilitate a, uh, to nurture a background in science, which will allow access to all of the healthcare professions. We want to do that. We want to start, we can start that with toddlers. We can start that with young children doing little experiments with them answering their questions, allowing them time and space to do experiments. And so that's what we, we started out talking about. And then we talked a little bit more about the didactics of um, going forward in a medical, with a medical education. So now what would you like the discussion to be, Dr. James? I'd like to know what your thoughts are about selecting a college to pursue because um, high school is one step and college is another step. Okay, well let, let, let me go into that a little bit a little bit deeper when we talk about colleges because the the dilemma for me is is quite a bit different from the dilemma today, which is like 40 years different, 40 or even 50 years difference between the time I was in high school and, 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 and today. Um, but the issue for me was, do I want to go to a, a black college, a historically black university or college? Or do I want to go to a so-called white college? That was one thing. And that was very, very difficult to choose. Um, and it was, it was hard. And so what I had to do is I had to, to look at myself and only myself and ask myself, how did I learn best? Did I learn best by being in a small environment with tiny classes and one-on-one -on -one lectures or discussions, 
or did I do well with a massive auditorium lectures with thousand students in it? And, um, you know, it was how did I learn best? And I had to really know myself well. And that helped me to, to go into to one direction. And then basically you just have to do your homework. Which, co- which college is going to give you the most money? Who's going to help you the most? And, I mean, that's just being realistic. You know, so those were the kind of issues that, that, that we dealt with. And you mentioned that there's a, a whole host of uh, college settings from the smaller class sizes to a larger uh, setting, and I think a lot of that has to do with knowing yourself, knowing in what setting you seem to uh, do better. Right. Um, and I think this is something that people often don't consider, that uh, they are learning in a setting that uh, has proven in the past has worked well. So a smaller class size may be a consideration. Some people right. don't know the class. Right. But they have to really know themselves. I mean, you, yeah, this is this is like a, the process that we were talking about, some of the difficulties in the process. This is an early step, but it's definitely important because it determines what your GPA is. And you have got to have a high GPA. There's no way around that. You cannot apply to medical school with the C average. You you have to apply with A A A minus B plus at the lowest. You can't go up there with the C. So you have to know which one am I going to be able to ace the science exam? Which college am I going to be able to ace the science test in? And pick that one. And um, I, I attended a small school with small class size, and that worked well for me. Um, that setting, however, tends to be a more expensive route than uh, the schools, often state-supported schools, that have a large class size. Yes. And, uh, but there uh, may be some financial uh, factors that go into making the decision as well if your uh, cost of tuition is going to be higher. Yes. Uh, and uh, I also found that um, there may have been opportunities for uh, getting scholarships that serve to keep some of your overall costs down. Uh, It's been recommended to uh, keep costs lower is perhaps attending a uh, city-based 
uh, junior college, as they're called, for the first two years to get the basic requirements uh, out of the way. And in the second two years, if there's a, a setting that is uh, more to your liking, uh, doing that simply for the last two years. And uh, I found that very interesting uh, consideration since everybody's taking math and taking science, a basic science or English history, humanities, uh, taking those at a school that has a lower cost for tuition may be a good strategy as you look at the, the big picture. Yeah, but I don't know how competitive that person will be. I would I would be suspicious of that. Um, in fact, I would I would call the medical school up and ask them would they consider an applicant who went who did two years of a junior college for his medical school requirements? Because I would think that that person would not be competitive with someone who went to a four year university for the first two years and did their uh, medical requirements. So I'd be very careful with that one. Well, that that's a really good point in terms of having a plan and uh, talking to the medical schools so that it's not a surprise if you take that's that right. out. That's right. That's and right. understanding that you may not be looked upon as favorably when it comes time to admission when you have attended one school versus another. I, I went to um, a small liberal arts school and with a high tuition, but I did during summers take some of my courses at another school. I took one of my um, requirements at a junior college, uh, I believe it was logic uh, or philosophy, and that was less expensive, and that was um, not considered a core course that the medical school was as concerned about. And I took physics during the summer, a very concentrated uh, experience, but I did take that at a four-year school, and, uh, and I got an A, and A is always good. And, uh, but the caution is if you get much lower than an A at another school, that may serve to hurt you when it comes to uh, applying for medical school. So it is good to do some conversations with uh, a medical school that you might be considering applying. And we were talking about uh, earlier about um, having a family. Uh, 
And I guess to some extent, some of this is difficult really to plan for, but it gets into the subject, particularly for women, the delay of starting one's family um, and the impact that may have as it relates to that person's fertility. And to wait uh, extended periods of time could compromise one's fertility, making it more difficult uh, to become pregnant. And this is often very difficult to project to predict. And in fact, there are some women who are exploring doing um, freezing their eggs uh, so that they can become pregnant at a later time, but with actually eggs that are coming from a mother who at the time those eggs are removed from the ovaries uh, the mother is is much healthier and um, there's of course a cost involved with that but I, I think that's an, uh, an excellent new technology that this that does allow people to uh, conceive and carry children at later times in their lives. So this is really kind of new. And the other thing that's really new, but is um, something that we should be aware of, are uh, those women who utilize a surrogate to uh, carry their pregnancies, which may be particularly important for women, particularly uh, African-American women who, who tend to undergo uh, or need to undergo a uh, procedure on their uterus due to the development of non-cancerous tumors which some people return, refer to as fibroid tumors, which can result in some women uh, being subjected to hysterectomy, which is the removal of the uterus, which would make it then impossible to carry a pregnancy. However, the availability of, of uh, utilizing a surrogate which is basically another woman who you've identified and who agrees to carrying uh, a baby that has your genetic material. So it, it is your baby. It is not the baby, the mother of, the baby is not, um, the baby of the woman who carried the baby. And so this is something that is now available uh, in some instances 
it's a kind of complex subject, but it doesn't close the door to one having children or, or at a later age. They may not have that pregnancy, but that is their uh, genetic uh, baby from the standpoint of uh, its chromosomes and genes being that of the family, but another woman carries that baby. So those are some exciting uh, avenues that are uh, available in, in uh, people who have found the need to delay um, childbearing. And sometimes you just don't find the person who's going to be that suitable mate. But this has been a fabulous conversation that we've had today. And it's at that time that we're going to need to wrap up, but look forward to being able to have this conversation again and in greater detail uh, because there's certainly a lot that goes along into this subject. And so we are thankful for our production staff today, Dr. Rogers, and to the Sankofa Council for uh, sponsoring uh, this program as well as our other programs. Um, it's been a delight to be with you uh, today. And uh, we thank our sponsors, EDOC Advice. We also thank um, the Finley Medical Clinic for being our sponsor as well. And uh, we look forward to bringing to you more programs that we hope you will enjoy. And we say good night, stay safe, the help us family and all of you until next time. And your hosts are Dr. James and Mother Asarta and thank our guests. Respect.